You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to David Hoyt, Assistant Director at Stanford University's Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation. We discuss the multifaceted national security challenges facing the United States today, ways to educate and excite students to want to work on the next generation of national security problems, how the center taps into Silicon Valley's investment and technology resources, and the role public-private partnerships play in advancing defense technologies. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And we have been hearing from many of you who've been listening to our Gov Future podcast. First of all, thanks for listening. Please do share and tell others to listen as well and subscribe because we've got some of the most amazing set of innovators sharing the cool things that they're doing in the government and public sector here on GovFuture Podcast. We've had interviews with Andre Mendez, CIO of the Department of Commerce, and folks in all the various different agencies, and even in Department of Defense, all the various defense agencies, and federal, civilian, state, and local as well. So if you haven't heard, for example, our interview with uh, the folks in charge of technology at Maricopa County in their in their court system, or the folks in state of New Jersey's court system, they're doing some pretty remarkable things with AI, natural language processing, automation, they're doing it all on state and local budgets too, which is quite remarkable. So definitely tune in and hear those podcasts. But one of the other great things we are are so thrilled to do is communicate and, and share these insights from our broad ecosystem of folks involved in supporting a lot of the work of building and growing innovation in the tech ecosystem and public sector. So here, you know, that's what we do here on GovFuture Podcast, uh, that we are focused on helping you, our listeners, and GovFuture members learn the latest innovations and best practices to stay ahead of innovation in the public sector. Exactly. And so we try and have interviews from a wide range of folks in the public sector and in this ecosystem, this innovation ecosystem, because it's so important to hear from all these different perspectives. So for today's podcast, we're so excited to have with us David Hoyt, who is Assistant Director at Stanford University's Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation. Welcome, David, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today, Kathleen and Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and what you do at Gordian Knot Center, which is also can go by GKC. No, thanks so much. Happy to share a bit more about myself and then the center and then get into all the questions I'm sure you have in store. Uh, so my name's uh, David Hoyt. I've been lucky enough to be at Stanford multiple times. I'm a pretty non-traditional student. I was actually a high school dropout, worked as a teenager, got a GED, went to community college in New Jersey, and then transferred out to Stanford University for my first degree there, which was in uh, international relations with a focus on U.S.-China relations. Um, had the chance to work in government and then in the private sector before coming back again for a joint law and business degree, where I focused at that intersection of emerging technology, regulatory policy, and kind of innovation entrepreneurship. And I had the chance once more to come back to help build the center with my undergraduate mentor, uh, Dr. Joe Felter, who was the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia under Secretary Mattis. Um, GKC has been in existence since 2021. 
Uh, and here we try to apply uh, the entrepreneurial methods that we teach at Stanford and we use more broadly in Silicon Valley to solving uh, national security and broader government challenges and policy issues, while also building the tools, the techniques, and bringing them into government. We build these at the speed and scale of relevance, all under kind of the lean methodology of Steve Blank, who is also one of the co-founders of the center. Happy after that, going to dig into some of the specific lines of effort. Let me know what would be helpful for your listeners. Yeah, that was all really very, very cool, and I think very insightful. And I think a lot of people might find it really interesting because we're, you know, we're talking about defense, we're talking about the government, but we're also talking about here academic institutions, Stanford University. People may not realize sort of the connections and the origins even of Silicon Valley rooted in uh, defense tech. So maybe before I get started on that question, we could share a little bit about that because there is a there is a history here. There's a reason why the Gordian Center is there at Stanford, and perhaps just maybe some some back background into defense and industry and Silicon Valley in general? No, happy to share. I think this is actually a surprising fact for a lot of Stanford students to know that they're kind of at the epicenter of defense technology and innovation on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, huge shout out to Steve Blank, The Secret History of Silicon Valley, the lecture he gave at the Computer History Museum. Absolutely worth uh, everyone's listen. It traces the history from World War II through the Cold War to the present. But a couple of things to note. So down the street from me, about 20 to 30 minutes, is a place called Moffett Field. This is where they began to test actually dirigibles um, in the 20th century. And from there, you know, you have the buildup and the execution of World War II. But really, um, our modern history of Silicon Valley starts in the aftermath of World War II in the Cold War. Um, Terman, who was the head of Stanford at the time, built an interesting model where people would kind of incubate ideas into organizations at Stanford and then be kicked out uh, to receive capital, kind of the origins here of your traditional uh, in the investor and startup and uh, entrepreneurship model. But at the same time, the government invested a huge amount of money in Stanford University to do research. Uh, you can think about if you go for a hike in sunny California on the hills behind Stanford, there's a giant dish. Well, Stanford did an amazing amount of science research with that. But, you know, once every, let's say, month, uh, the government would get access to it and it would catch uh, radio transmissions that came up from the Soviet Union and bounced off the moon. And then we would uh, we would analyze it. Advances uh, critically, obviously, in, Sil in Silicon, the Silicon Valley, a namesake of semiconductors came out of there with enormous amounts of government aid. We still have the defense innovation unit down the street. And this kind of uh, interplay between government dollars. Uh, government-funded S&T, the startup ecosystem, really is the, the kernel that builds modern Silicon Valley. So it's everything from semiconductors, the internet coming out of this ecosystem. Uh, I think the story begins to get a bit more modeled uh, in the 70s and 80s. And since then, like the government's maintained a presence, but it hasn't been as much of part of the forefront of the story. And I think the, the idea of Steve Blank and Joe Felcher and myself is to kind of bring that presence back, bring that, that story of the U.S. government and private industry out here and our, and our country's best and brightest minds all working together towards large, important issues and solving the problems of today is why we built the center in the first place. Yeah, I think that's really key. And it's hard not to notice uh, the big dish behind the, the hills there at Stanford and drive by and one side or the other. It's kind of always wondered about that. So I'm, I'm glad you kind of shelved, provide a little light into that. So uh, let's actually dig a little bit into it. So like, you know, how does the GKC, Gordian Knot Center, address many of these national security challenges that the United States is facing today? And it seems like just the pace of changes just keeps just getting faster and faster. No, I think that's uh, that's great. Uh, really important point. I was a big fan of Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late, when that came out. It's kind of one of the first books I had read that really captured how it felt to be on the receiving end 
of the speed of change changing so rapidly. Uh, and I would say since that book came out, it just feels almost breathless, the rate that's happening. Um, you can think about various forms of technology that are accelerating. Change in the geopolitical status of the world is changing. You've got climate change and so many other things. It's hard to keep breath for everything that's going on. Uh, what that also means is that there are problems that are less fixed in time than there were before. So, you know, this leads us to kind of the original ethos of founding of the center. So this can trace its origins back to 2016 when Stanford launched the class Hacking for Defense. Now, for our, your listeners, when we say hacking in the sense, I don't mean cybersecurity, so there are plenty of cybersecurity problems and projects that are tackled in the class. Instead, when I say hacking, using kind of the Facebook Silicon Valley method, we're hacking together a solution quickly in a short amount of time. So in this class, launched originally by Steve Blank, Joe Felter, Pete Newell, and Steve Weinstein, and then a few others, and still continues to be one of the more popular classes at Stanford, student teams form and apply, um, uh, and they apply to work on a specific problem that is sponsored by the U.S. government or an ally and partner. Now, some of these problems, given the name, Hacking for Defense, may come from the Department of Defense. We've had some problems from the intelligence community. But you could tackle climate change problems and others similarly from, like, let's say, the Department of Energy, et cetera, et cetera. The specific problem, uh, the method is fairly agnostic to the specific problem. So and all problems we receive are unclassified. Uh, we don't work on classified problems in this class. Students receive this problem, and frankly, we uh, as students, I took it when I was uh, wrapping up my grad degree, uh, we know very little about uh, the topic when we start, but the secret sauce here is it's really kind of applying the scientific method um, to problem solving, very much like what the ethos of lean method is. So you start with a problem, which no solution baked in, and you realize that you probably don't understand it. Now, traditionally, you might go to the library, read about it for five years, and we do recommend you couple some vigorous research with the next couple of things. But really what you want to do is break the problem into a series of testable hypotheses. And then uh, Steve would always say, uh, there are no answers in the building. So you need to get out of the building. You got to call people who actually have the problem. So if you have a sponsor in the Navy who might be in the Office of Naval Research, maybe you call folks in the Pacific Fleet or you in Mind Warfare, whoever kind of owns a piece of that problem. You ask them. You know, how they see it. You put up maybe example slides or testable hypothesis. You get their feedback and we require every team of students to do 10 discovery interviews every week at a minimum. In addition, they have a check in with a professor. They have a check in with a military mentor and they have a check in with a business mentor. And then they have to do a reverse classroom teaching session where they have uh, a set of time where they have to present a series of slides and then get cross examined by the whole teaching team. And that's every week. Now, the hypothesis here is that these teams of students who are forced to rapidly iterate week by week, and we begin to keep adding more requirements every week, keep them at, on the tips of their toes, uh, call at minimum 100 people in the 10-week quarter, um, and it's hard to be foolish about a problem. You tend to understand pretty well. And what's great is uh, you begin to see the learning on the sponsor side at the same time. So usually the sponsor comes in, they know the problem really well, they're very confident in the problem, they're very happy the student team is working on this pro bono. And then around week two or three, uh, the students find an interesting piece of information and they're forced to kind of narrow the aperture and then pivot repeatedly, repeatedly throughout the course. And then the sponsor goes, hey, you're going off track. What are you doing? Come back. No, I know what the problem is. And then there's like a period of, of let's say, discomfort for the sponsor and the government. And then around week seven of this 10-week course, you realize that the problem that you started with is almost invariably a symptom of a different problem. And by pulling that thread and calling a bunch of people, you can tease out what a, the root problem is, and then you begin to put together a minimal viable product or MVP solution. When we say MVP in our class, I don't mean like a tech widget. I mean, whatever it requires you to give a beneficiary to get the next 
datum of information. So it's whatever small thing you can do to test quickly at the lowest possible cost, get the highest learning in the shortest amount of time. And then over that time, you begin to build something that could be deployable. And then we force the students to think about a deployment plan. So let's say, you know, you were working for something that had to deal with spectrum and radio. That might be the right solution to a problem that you've traced through over seven weeks. Well, how would you deploy it? Who would need to use it? How would they go about buying it? And you introduce students to the acquisition system. And then after that, there are other kind of let's off ramps for students to keep working on their project. But this is kind of the ethos that started the center with this lean method of sourcing problems and then forcing people to hack them down really quickly, aggregate information, sponsor comes along and understands the problem in a new way. They're connected to dozens of other people who are working the problems they may not have known about, connecting W's to W's, which I know is a key mission for your team. That's something we love seeing as a value add. And then uh, by the end, the sponsor takes this all back with them or this and or the student sometimes builds you know, companies that comes out of this, things like Capella Space or Vanover Labs came out of our class. And we're really proud of that. So in 2021, building on this success, uh, the Office of Naval Research worked with Steve Blank, Joe Felfer, and myself to launch a center that can kind of scale up efforts. So in addition to hacking for defense, we teach other classes, such as this fall's technology, innovation, and great power competition, a survey of emerging technologies that are pivotal to the great power competition between the U.S. and the People's Republic of China. Students do a limited lean method problem solving, usually doing about 30 interviews in a quarter, and it's instead applied to a technical solution, uh, problem and solution, applied to a policy issue, how to compete over a technology. And, um, you know, our students have presented this to the government, whether sending demos up to places like the NSC or various parts of the DOD or the IC, the ability to do real change and make a policy impact now. And in addition to building the future leaders of tomorrow. Um, we've scaled this out with something we're really proud of called the Defense Innovation Scholars Program. What that allows you to do is we are able to give small stipends to students to allow them to kind of almost like in an angel investing for policy ideas or uh, work on something that they care about, either individually or collectively using the same method. Find that problem, call stakeholders, build a solution that instead of uh, the students having to, you know, look for a grant or look for a five unit directed reading, they get a tiny bit of capital fairly stringless for them to go out and source a problem and work on it. Frequently, they'll connect on LinkedIn with dozens of people for this. They'll, sometimes they have created their own jobs coming out, their ability to create a policy solution today and deliver it to government. It makes them feel invested and helps build the ethos of a lifelong career in service. And then finally, we host a series of events, um, usually under Chatham House rules for the government. And the goal here is that, you know, as we'll probably dig into on this podcast, Huge amounts of emerging technological change are occurring in the private sector, much of it here in Silicon Valley, and frequently outside the purview of government actors. And contrast this with, say, the Cold War, where leadership in things like the space race or international ballistic missiles the internet were started heavily in government and then transfused in the private sector. Frequently now we're seeing it going both ways, not as effectively as we would like. So to make sure the government knows what the state of the possible is, they need to be talking to leaders in the business space. Uh, the hard part is figuring out who those are and as well, as well as doing that, that is within the bounds of what is appropriate within federal regulations of acquisition. Now, as an academic institution who engages deeply within the private sector of Silicon Valley, as well as leading academics into these technologies, we have the ability to convene and use that, uh, that big Stanford red S to pull the right people together. That allows us to pull together the dot coms and the dot orgs with the dot govs and the dot mills under the dot edu to have a candid conversation about where technology is where it's going, the problems that the government sees, how the two can better coordinate. And that helps reduce the kind of information asymmetry on both sides to allow more meaningful collaboration. Um, we have some cool things in the hopper we're planning for 2024, but I won't spoil those surprises. We're happy to talk more about them next year once they're launched.
All right. Well, then we'll definitely have to have you back onto the podcast so we can talk about all that. And it is, it was really interesting. You know, we were able to come to Stanford University and we had one of our GovFuture forums there. And we were able to bring together that ecosystem where our GovFuture forums primarily are in Washington, D.C., but in 2024, they will be going to different areas. So stay tuned for that, listeners. But it was interesting because a lot of what we do, you know, we bring together that entire ecosystem, but we do have a focus on federal government, and that is in Washington, D.C. So in order to see those different areas and people and students that go to Stanford are national, right? You know, they don't just pull from California. They pull from all over the United States and internationally as well. So it's interesting to where with us in Washington, D.C. and in this area, it's Working for the government, having somebody in your family or a neighbor, it's not uncommon. But out in Silicon Valley, it is way less common. And probably many of the students that go there don't necessarily know, you know, close connections that work for the government. So it's interesting that, the, you know, you do have this program here. And it's nice as well that it's able to bring these different students together. So you had talked a lot about the initiatives and programs that you have. But maybe can you also share about how you are exciting these students to want to work on this, you know, next generation of national security? No, I think that's a great question. Um, I think uh, there is an enormous amount of untapped demand out here. I think that's the most important thing. If Govey's listening, take one lesson is there's a real demand to serve. And it's not being touched uh, nearly as much as it needs to. And there's a talent pool here that wants to help your, you and solve your problems. You want to get them involved. So I'll give you the kind of hacking for defense uh, example. So when they launched in 2016, this was basically a retooling of the Lean Launchpad class, which is one of the Stanford's top classes. Basically teaches you how to build a company and you do so real time. No one really knew in amongst the teaching team whether people wanted to build mission-oriented companies. Uh, and I will tell you that in every year... Uh, that we run Hacking for Defense, it is oversubscribed. We receive roughly, um, even with an application a quarter before an interview process that people have to build a deck to even apply, we receive over 300% the number of applications for seats among students in the class. Uh, for technology, innovation, and great power competition, we've, every year we've had to bump the, the total class size up uh, to basically the limit of what we can accommodate. So, you know, we might start with like 30 students, same thing. Who's going to take a graduate seminar with this much work. It's a hefty reading load. It meets uh, Monday nights, which is never the best time to try and get students to show up. And it has a project where you have to call 30 plus people, write a paper, give a presentation, write a personal memo. And still we have had to bump up either doubling or 150% of the initial capacity every single year. And the wait list is long. Um, so total demand. Now, the second thing that I think has occurred is that uh, there's a huge ethos of uh, wanting to make an impact in this upcoming generation from the undergrads all the way up there at Stanford. But it's, it's amazing how much these younger generations really wanted to do good. They want to have an impact on climate change. So hacking for defense, but out of hacking for sustainability, they're the same thing. They want to have an impact on public health, health and on policy. Uh, and then in the unfortunate world events that have occurred in the last few years, um, war and geopolitics is at the forefront of everyone's mind everywhere now. You know, once Vladimir Putin invaded the Ukraine, uh, the conversation about war on campus changed, not from a like uh, an ethical dilemma, but the fact that it was now a real possibility that people were concerned about. 
you know, with the October 7th attacks by Hamas on innocent Israelis, um, you see this again. And then with the concerns over the U.S. and the People's Republic of China permeating the news two years ago, um, it was purely in defense blogs. Now you can open up the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal daily and read about potential tensions over Taiwan. Um, these are real issues that students are having late night conversations and grappling with. They want to be involved in their, they're signing up in droves for the courses, uh, that we're offering. And frankly, we don't have enough staff to keep up with the demand, which is a great problem to have. The next thing though is that many students show up at Stanford, even on the West Coast, and they want to go to DC. They want to find a way to work in the federal government or to serve for a certain number of years. Or they want to run for office or they want to volunteer in the hills. Many want to work in local or state government. Where either where they came from or in the state of California, there's a, a large desire to do that. Now, I think there is opportunity to expand both uh, the information available to these students and how to get involved and create additional bridges to bring them over so that they can serve. And then it's easier to serve early in your career. And once you've done that, you kind of have that ethos of public service. You look to get back to it. Um, I think one last thing I would add is, uh, especially when talking to the government folks in the national security space who are your listeners, is that you have the most interesting and challenging problems in the world, right? And smart students want to work on hard, interesting, dynamic problems. And many of them are willing to take dramatic pay cuts to work on the hardest, most impactful things. So don't feel that just the salaries uh, are a barrier. They're really um, compelled by both impact and intellectual stimulation. And so we got to capture them uh, into this interesting, dynamic field early. Yeah. For sure. This is this is fantastic. I think it's interesting. And, and you're right, the world is, is changing in some of these profound ways. And let's not forget Venezuela and Guyana, because, you mm-hmm. know, who knows? <laughs> who knows that this is a, let's just name two random countries and say something's going to happen there as well. So anything can happen in Iceland, you know, so uh, any, <laughs> you know, or, or in Mozambique. So, um, you know, uh, let, let's continue, because one of the other unique things about where Stanford sits in the innovation e- economy as a whole, you know, because we talk about, you know, defense tech and government tech, and, you know, there's there's some centers of that around the U.S., but the one thing that is core in, to Silicon Valley is, of course, the local investment community, the tech ecosystem that has, you know, built some of the, the biggest tech names there are on the whole planet. So, so of course, you know, there's going to be some curiosity. It's like, you know, how, especially what you're doing in the GKC and Sanford, how, how are we tying in that uh, investor community, the technology resources, the big tech ecosystems, the tech giants, you know, into what's happening uh, in, in all the things that we've just been talking about? No, I think that's a great question. To shout out books, because everyone who meets with me on campus never leaves without a book recommendation. The first, there's the book called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by Margaret O'Mara, which I highly recommend. It's kind of the origin of Silicon Valley and to some degree how it works. And then the second one, kind of tying to your point you made about Silicon Valley and Stanford within Silicon Valley, within the origins of like America's core geography here of innovation, is an old, a older book called The New Geography of Jobs by Enrico Moretti. Um, it's got some omissions that later scholars in their studies uh, field have kind of dug into, but it really talks about the centralization of kind of jobs and innovation ecosystems. And if you really think about this, like uh, there are really there's amazing talent all across this country. There are really good businesses that need to flourish. If you think about the emerging tech ecosystem, there are some hubs that are larger and more impactful on the government than others. Um, obviously, I may be biased in here at Stanford. Uh, if I was in Boston, maybe I'd say something different. Uh, but uh, Silicon Valley is really unique in this country. 
and across the entire world. Uh, you are correct. There is a very tight coupling between top talent uh, and between them and a lot of capital. There's also a lot of existing jobs. Uh, and this fluidity of the ecosystem allows you to learn a lot and move quickly uh, around the ecosystem, gaining skills, gaining capital, building teams. Now, I know that right now we're probably in, in one of the more uh, terrible times from a fundraising standpoint. But if you look back, um, just as a sidebar for anyone aspiring on the call, uh, great companies are built in tough times. So in the dot-com bubble, when that blew up and everyone said Silicon Valley is over, the internet days are over, Amazon was built. When you think about in 08 and 09 and the, and the collapse that happened there, Facebook was built. I'm assuming that the Facebooks and Amazon tomorrow are going to come out of this one, and some of the fluff in the ecosystem is going to go away. But Stanford makes this really easy. You have an academic quarter system with very little barriers between different departments for students to kind of flow throughout the university and gain skills. Uh, as an East Coaster originally myself, I don't know, maybe it's in the water or the sunshine or the palm trees, but you just feel more collaborative when you're out here. It feels wonderful, and you want to work with people and solve these kind of problems. From there, Sand Hill Road is a quick Uber right away. You can bring a pitch deck and just plug in right there. Now, obviously, after COVID, there's a lot more uh, options to zoom in as well. But, you know, the funding is maybe a 10-minute ride down the road from campus. Uh, you have all of your tech giants down the road from a talent standpoint for you to learn kind of best-in-class abilities. And then when you're ready, kind of strike out on your own. And then, at least in uh, legal history, uh, California has largely not enforced, I mean, either they're unconstitutional non-competes. And so this allows people to leave their jobs in one company and stay in the same sector and build a new company quickly, allowing for a fast flywheel there. Now, if you look at your economic history, um, when a company hits that wonderful IPO stage, it almost uh, follows a virology model. It shoots out a bunch of capital. It shoots out a bunch of people. Some of those people will become investors. Some will become uh, you know, new seed businesses. Some of those will make it to the IPO They'll pop out new investors and new capital and new business ideas. And over time, the ecosystem becomes very self-sustaining. Now, it's kind of the first, one of the first ecosystems to do this. Um, the Valley has had decades to build that, hence a huge uh, amount of capital liquidity and then a liquid market for talent and opportunity. But you're also seeing this in like the last 10 years change around the country, right? You can look up at Seattle. And Seattle was, uh, was, you know, not going to be that place until Bill Gates made the important decision to move Microsoft from New Mexico to Seattle. And with Microsoft and Amazon and others, you have a, a really amazing tech pool there. You're starting to see the same thing happen in Salt Lake City as well with some of the IPOs in the last five years. And I think that this is a great way to think about building different talent pools and innovation ecosystems. Now, I think the other question you asked, which is how do these big players work with the government, right? So the first is, remember going back to that first answer, Silicon Valley didn't just, you know, spring out of the desert de novo, right? Government really helped, made it sizable investments in semiconductor, sizable investments in aerospace and defense, and sizable investments in creating the internet. So we're really, well, we should be at least grateful out here. I'm very grateful for the government helping feed that ecosystem in the beginning. Um, and then you can think about the amount of tools that are being brought over. Um, each kind of step function of emerging technology, more things are bought by the government. Uh, before Microsoft Windows, there's probably no OS being sold in. You know, Google and Amazon sell many, many things to the government. I think the real question is that we should be asking, though, is in the newest emerging technologies that are just coming out now, how do we get them into the government faster? These are advances in synthetic biology. We eventually get there to be advances in quantum computing. We're seeing, like, we're having a, a very um, 
exciting conversation about various forms of artificial intelligence and generative AI right now. But the question is, are we buying them at scale? So I think that, you know, from the government's perspective, communicate your problems. Tell us in the civilian sector what you need and why you need it. We want to help, but frankly, we don't frequently know what problems you're working on. Second, you know, uh, you want to invest in sending people out here to the West Coast, potentially stationing them for the long term. You want to know who are the good players and which companies are not going to make it. You want to know where the technology is coming from um, and who you should be talking to. I think DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit, Moffitt Field, is maybe one of the gold standards for this. They're 20 minutes down the street. They come to campus often. They talk to the startups in the space. They're really trying to understand. you got to have listening posts out there for the government. And then as simple as it might be, uh, to say uh, you need to buy the technology at the end of the road. Um, companies here are ultimately, while they're mission-oriented in their founders and their, some of the products they make, they are businesses in our liberal capitalist system. And we do need to actually pay them for the products and services they build. And if they do that, the market will respond and buy more. And the last is um, you need a whole team to kind of work on this. There's plenty of uh, forward-leaning regulators out there from different government agencies who are thinking critically about this. You want to work with those leading companies to figure out what are the regulations that make sense to balance the different equities involved. Um, these are sometimes non-trivial, and they sometimes require you to go back and look at things that have been on the books for decades. And no one would have ever imagined that, you know, in the FAA's case, that the average user would be able to own a drone and fly it wherever, right? This is, you know, the FAA faced this the first time with this great book called Who Owns the Sky? How do you think about this kind of whole new area that we've never had to consider before? So I think we're on the cusp of that, and it's going to take players – and academia, government, and business thinking really creatively and working collaboratively to figure out what the right equilibrium for this country is on each of these different technologies. Hopefully uh, that nailed some of what you're going for, Ron, but I'm happy to expand as whatever would be helpful for your listeners. Yeah, I think that was great. And your answers, you you pack so much into all of your answers. We could dig so deep in just, just one question here. Uh, you know, but moving along to public-private partnerships, what role do you see those public-private partnerships playing in advancing defense technologies? And maybe if you have any examples of this that you can share. No, I think that's a great question to ask. And I think, so uh, before the podcast started, we were all nerding, nerding out a bit on uh, economic history. And one of the points I always make is that, you know, as this country developed, uh, we will frequently regulate an industry. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because regulation can feel like a negative word here, what we want to think about doing is frequently raising the lower bar of quality by standardizing it. But by uh, the associated result of that is you do raise the cost of entry for new entrants. Like there are a lot of regulations now in the book that you have to follow rules, you have to do to ensure that minimal quality, right? And so I think the question of public-private partnerships now, given that, is um, this is not a new issue, but as you called it out on defense, every sector behaves differently. Now, defense is a fairly regulated sector, uh, not for a bad reason. We don't want a new person building an aircraft for the very first time or a rifle or a bomb or any of the associated systems um, related to that. But how do you ensure that you meet the standard of quality while allowing the best entrants who may or may not be new to enter that system? Now, I would think of this as a continuum from public-private partnership. So the first is, is that defense has really challenging problems, but frequently those are not market problems. So let's say you were building a new nuclear submarine. I'm just making this up notionally. And you had to design a special propeller for that. There's not going to be that many propellers that you're ever going to need to, to build or buy, which means that that contract is not something that the market will normally solve for. That's going to mean you're going to need to invest money in the basic research in S&T uh, in order to develop the science that will go into even the production in the first place. 
And then you'll really need to ensure that there's a specialist player who's solving something like that, especially when there's very specialized equipment of low quantity, uh, the market might not meet those needs. So now going back to your first question on this part of the continuum, uh, I would call for more money invested in basic research and F&T, things that the government does best because there's not a market need. The market responds really well to applied technology. Basic research that has already been completed, well, now people are thinking about how to commercialize it, but the market doesn't do basic research well. In the Cold War, we had an enormous amount of money as a percent of GDP compared to now invested in basic research, and that allowed us as Americans to stay ahead of the Soviets in the vast majority of technological races or make up lost ground in places like the space race, where uh, I would argue falling behind in part because we're not funding that. Next, as you kind of continue along that scale, uh, this touches on some of the stuff we talked before. You need a greater fluidity of interaction between the government and the non-government. Um, you need people talking to each other, understanding each other's problems. You need talent to flow between the public and the private sectors. Now, that might look different from what it looked like before. Uh, the traditional model in government is frequently you go in and serve for multiple decades. You become a real specialist in the craft, and we still want that to some degree for many roles. Um, but imagine if you could take a top AI coder from Silicon Valley. They're probably not going into government for 30 years. Uh, the, they can make a lot in the Valley, but they also are okay frequently giving up some of that salary for a year or two or three. Now imagine if they could go in, they could add enormous value for a few years, but now when they come back out to the private sector, they have a better understanding of the government's problems. They can build those solutions that they need. Um, so that kind of uh, interplay between the two would be really valuable. Um, third is I think uh, a lot of requirements set by the government uh, frequently meet kind of industrial production standards. And there's times when you want that. I don't want to knock those too badly. You know, if it's got to be, I don't know, a widget that keeps an aircraft carrier running for the next 50 years, that has to have a minimum standard. But on the emerging technology problem, we don't usually know what the best in class technology is or how it's going to be used or why, it, or even if it should be used or why it's going to be used. Instead, if we frame these as problems to be solved and then work our way backward, we may find that there are multiple ways to solve that problem and that different technologies will flow in. But it's very hard to define, you know, for example, the synthetic biology uses that we're going to see in the next 10, 20 years today when the science hasn't been completed. Um, you see some of the agencies that do this well, as you know, we saw a couple years back, uh, I think probably four or five now, um, on the autonomous vehicle competition, that the uh, Department of Transportation, um, more broadly, was holding off on setting certain specific regs, because they didn't know which technology would win. Those are times to build sandboxes and help uh, make sure the regs support the prototyping and the testing and the evaluation. And when you think about defense technology, there are certain things that you need to test in very specialized spaces. Access to testing and evaluation is really helpful. Now, there's some people who are kind of at the cutting edge of that. I want to give a shout out to NPS, which tries to make its testing facilities available uh, to people building things like drones, per se. And so student teams that are building this and want to test that, there's some great spaces there to allow them to test within the bounds of the law. Then you got to buy the stuff at the end of the day, and then we need to, like, once a standard has been set, we can work with the judicial regulatory system to kind of enshrine that into law, hit that standard of quality, and then work on the next challenge. But this is going to require people to move fast and probably feel a bit of discomfort. Um, there's probably a million more things I would say on this, but uh, <laughs> take a deep breath and allow your you to jump back in with more questions. Yeah, this is fantastic. And certainly there actually is a, every single little bit here we can dive deep into because some of these are some of these systemic challenges in terms of government and how it acquires innovative technology. We've actually talked about this a number of times, even off the podcast, 
where we see situations where sometimes there's just a lot of momentum and it's really hard to get even on the government side that may want to use some innovative technology. There, it may be difficult because of all the hurdles that are required to bring in the new company into the ecosystem, even after they jump through all those steps. It just may be like, ah, it, you know, it's just easier to work with somebody I'm already working with. And that, of course, continues the entrenchment of the companies who are there, you know, and that and there's also uh, the other thing that we, we may not have talked about yet. There's a lot of these professional innovators, as it were, that it's like this whole area of the so-called the SIBRs, you know, small business innovation research grants, which are primarily meant to help these innovative companies you're talking about. But then there are others that have just know how to work the process because there's a process and they're constantly churning through the grants with really no real uh, desire or capability to commercialize. And that's a problem because it eats up all of that uh, resource there. So so there's a lot of these issues that that are related to innovation, but but kind of like tangentially, they get in the way uh, of innovation. That's a real, real problem, right? But but there's times when all of a sudden things click and things work. Like, for example, a great example of this in defense was the Defense Production Act being used to accelerate the development of COVID vaccines in that crazy amount of time. We went, it took nine months from we need a vaccine to we have vaccines out shipping. And we had a great interview with our friends at the, the CIO of Defense Logistics Agency out in Fort Belvoir, where they're like, who do you think is actually shipping out these vaccines? And this it's us, it's the DLA. So it's crazy. When, when, when the government wants to move fast and wants to be innovative, all the reins are let go. But in every other case, it's there. And it's just, it's like, it's, it gives you a glimpse of what's possible, right? I think there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of jumping here. So kind of going back to the previous answer first connectors is one of the things I want to emphasize here, though, is that we're not innovating in a vacuum. Like, this would be a hard enough problem uh, where that we were, yeah, there's no geopolitical realities in America. It's just trying to uh, compete with itself and be its very best self and adopt um, these technologies and adapt them to its very needs. But we're not doing this in a vacuum. Like we are competing in a great power competition with the People's Republic of China frequently over these emerging technologies. Now, if you think about the Cold War, right? Um, a lot of the processes put in place came about sometime during the Cold War or its very end or in the kind of, um, the illusory piece at the end of it, what we could call maybe even the second interwar period. Um, and the difficulties there is for today's versus the old one. The old one is just, you know, let's take fighter planes for a second. Uh, the planning process allowed us to be one generation ahead of the Soviets each time. So as long as we met the innovation timeline that we had set, we could know we could outmatch them in tech and doctrine and talent. Um, now, the hard part is, though, that assumes continuous change. We are now in a period of discontinuous change. So the book I would always recommend here, this is Clay Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. There are very rational reasons while the incumbent, whether in business or government, can develop the technology first, but not adopt it because it is rational for them to keep the status quo. Now, also in periods of discontinuous change, you have the ability to leapfrog. Um, listen to a great uh, book on the invention of the shipping container. And I would not have suspected at the... Uh, when they invented the shipping container, the ports that were willing to adopt it survived and thrived. And the ports that did not began to wither and die. And with that, all the attendant labor and all the attendant jobs and all the attendant taxes. Now, we're talking about, you know, changes in computing, changes in, in artificial intelligence, changes in biology, changes in telecoms. The list goes on. These are all technologies that are deeply core to America's 
economic strength, and with economic strength comes tax bases, comes jobs for citizens and civilians, et cetera. Um, the risk of not innovating fast enough is that you lose these technologies and the benefits will accrue to the winner. In many of these technologies, the winner will be uh, uh, China. That's the tough part here. Now, the second thing I would say is uh, when you brought up the Defense Production Act, there's a really important distinction here. Um, I'm going to credit Derek Thompson of the Atlantic for making this point, is the difference between innovation and diffusion. Is Innovation is critical. That is the first idea. The question is whether it is adopted at the speed and scale of relevance. One of the examples he gives in this article is that the uh, smallpox vaccine was the innovation occurred at the late 18th century. It finished diffusing by the mid to late 20th century. Now, what's amazing about COVID is that the innovation and diffusion occurred so rapidly, more rapidly than any other invention, probably in the history of humanity. And we can maybe debate uh, ChatGPT and how fast it was downloaded and adopted as maybe the only other competitor. So, you know, innovation is really critical for the government, but so is diffusion. So is adoption at the speed and scale of relevance to make sure that now we don't have just one prototype of the cool widget of the day but that everyone who needs it gets it at the speed to solve the problem. Now, in defense, that's that problem to be solved is the deterrence of major war. And we need that uh, those technologies innovated and diffused quickly. Um, so that, that burning platform is real, real there, Ron. Yeah, well, this has been such a wonderful podcast and discussion. I know we could go on forever, but we are close to time. And I want to be mindful for our listeners so we always like to wrap up our podcast with asking all of our guests the same question because you're able to bring your own unique experiences and background and really shape this and, and answer it. Uh, everybody answers it in a unique way. So what do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I think um, I would say start by saying I feel hopeful. Uh, I think when you live in through periods of change, change, it can feel messy, it can feel complex. But when you read a really simple history book, or as probably many people do nowadays, watch this on YouTube or listen to a podcast, it can feel like, yeah, of course, you know, we got the railroads, or of course we got the highway system, of course we got the internet. Like we're just living through that period. And I'm sure it felt messy and complicated um when people were in. So the first so with this, I would say is like uh, what do I hope to see? Well, some of this is a kind of the ethos of like, I see this as very much a team sport. This is going to take a lot of actors from very different backgrounds. Uh, and I mean that both in the demographics of them, the geographic, but also the sector that they work in. It's going to take government and private sector. It's going to take capital. It's going to take journalists. It's going to take academics, nonprofits, and many, many more working in a kind of a, sh- a shared or similar view of the problem, or as my boss would say, rowing in the right direction to solve this. So that's going to, and it's going to be messy because it's, we're a democracy. It means people have to be forward looking, might be a bit sharp, sharp elbows and we'll have that debate. But the goal is in kind of the hope of our whole system, more broadly of this like liberal democratic capitalist state that we are, is that it's going to look messy until it doesn't. And the advantage of kind of our competition, the autocratic state, like kind of status mercantilist people's Republic of China is it looks really clear in front with a chosen winner. And some technologies that actually may not be the best approach. Uh, so we kind of trust in the system here. Now, what it's also going to take is that in the private sector and academia, and speaking to the people I probably work with more often, is you know have that ethos of public service. Give, give time to help out government. Doesn't have to be federal, state, and local. Also need your services. You'd be surprised by how much value you can add by bringing your know-how uh, to that. And that involves uh, that requires you to get involved. And on the government side, 
you know, it's give us a chance to serve as well. Make those opportunities and talent. Learn from people outside of government, but also be transparent in your problems. Like you do incredible work. And sometimes I think the government can undermarket how much value it's providing to the citizens. When people see that value, they'll want to fight for that more. So I think uh, hopefully what I will see is not just like the, you know, the continuous pace of discontinuous change, which I think is coming no matter what we want, but that we continue using these kind of more agile, more lean methods to understand the problem, figure out who owns it, figure out a lot, bring together a lot of stakeholders quickly, test things small, scale them rapidly, and then deploy them widely. So, you know, innovate, diffuse, and then take the best in class from both the West Coast and the East Coast, the public and the private, and put them together. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure Steve Blank would agree with you on a lot of that. <laughs> this thing, and actually, that is core to our philosophy too. Not only here uh, when we talk about Gov future, but just in general in our life: think big, start small, iterate often. And and to Steve Blank's point, you know, always talk to the customer, talk to the customer, keep 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 that finger on the pulse of what people are. Even if they don't tell you what they want, they they vote with their actions, right? They they show you what they want more than they tell you. So this is this is uh, really cool, and I I think our Listeners, you love this is so interesting, so unique, so different. And so, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're going to have you on again. Absolutely. Um, I think for our listeners also, we do have the recording from the uh, Silicon Valley panel. So if you haven't listened to it, you can listen to it. David was on that panel as well as our friends from the U.S. Coast Guard and from Defense uh, Innovation Unit and from National Security Innovation Network, Ensign. Uh, so you, you'll hear all those folks on there. It was a fantastic one. And of course, we have some additional interviews with those folks as well. But I just want to thank you so much, David, for being on the Gut Future podcast and sharing your insightful thoughts with all of our listeners. Ron, Kathleen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Love to continue the conversation. And uh, if I don't talk to you before next year, have a happy new year. Thanks. Yeah, this was such a wonderful podcast. And I will definitely have to get all of the books that you recommended so I can link to them in the show notes, because I know that Ron and myself are interested in reading those. And I'm sure our listeners are as well. I will also link to Gordian Knot Center in case folks want to learn more about that and the Gov Future Forum that we did at Stanford University, because that really was such a wonderful podcast. Uh, well, it was a it is a podcast now, but it was a panel. And so both of them were wonderful. And listeners, as Ron mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you have not done so already, make sure to subscribe to the GovFuture podcast. You can get notified of all of our upcoming episodes. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you have not done so already, become a member of GovFuture to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, including access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with different government agencies, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. To learn more and to sign up to become a GovFuture member, go to govfuture.com slash join, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. We also have resources that are tailored just for you, our GovFuture listeners. Go to govfuture.com slash resources so you can check that out. We have different books and resources. We'll make sure to add some of the books that David recommended as well to the resources page. We have explainer videos, webinars, and more. So that's at govfuture.com slash resources. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved.
Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the Gov Future podcast and catch you at the next episode.